Psalm 8. <clears throat> o Lord our God, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. Thou whose glory above the heavens is chanted by the mouth of babes and infants. Thou hast founded a bulwark because of thy foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast established, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? Yet thou hast made him little less than God, and dost crown him with glory and honor. Thou hast given him dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, whoever passes among, along the paths of the sea. O Lord our God, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. Our second scripture reading uh, is Genesis chapter 2. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 24. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals, but still there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, This one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh, and she will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and, they will be, and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. I should have stopped past that. I apologize. Amen. Our gospel reading today is going to be from the book of Mark, chapter 10. We're going to start in verse... I'm going to start back up a little bit, actually. I'm going to start in verse 2. Um, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 2. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with these questions. Um, they tried to trap him with questions. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them with the question, What did Moses say in the law about divorce? Well, he admitted to it. He permitted it, sorry. Well, he permitted it, they replied. He said man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. But Jesus responded, he wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. But God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united as one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Later, when he was alone with the disciples in the house, they brought up the subject again, and he told them, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries someone else, he commits she commits adultery. One day, some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them, but the disciples scolded the parents for bothering them. When Jesus saw that this was happening, he was angry with the disciples, and he said to them, Let the children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom like a little child will never enter it. Then he took the children in his arms, and he placed his hands on their heads, and he blessed them. The word of the Lord. 
So I feel like we've kind of repeated that a couple times in the last couple weeks, uh, let the little children come to me. But that doesn't change the fact that we're going to go over that again today. Um, <laughs> but I'll be honest with you, I struggle with this text the last couple weeks. I actually tried to preach the Hebrews text. There was a Hebrews text that was available in the lectionary, and I couldn't get that to work out. I wrote a short sermon on the Psalms text, and it was okay, but I just kept coming back to the gospel text, um, and as you often do. And as I preached a few weeks ago, it's really something I just had to wrestle with. It's something I had to figure out in my own heart. And Corey eventually just asked me, what is your problem with this text? Like, what is your deal? And after thinking about it, I just told him, I said, I just, I don't want to preach about divorce. Like, that sounds horrible, and I don't want to do that. Like, I just, I wanted to step away from that. And he said, well, what's your fear of preaching about divorce? And so it took me a while, and I sat for a couple, a little while, and I thought about it. And I think my problem was I thought I would disagree with Jesus. I thought that I wouldn't be able to reconcile my own morality with the divinity of Jesus. I was worried that if I dug into a little bit that, that I might disagree with Jesus. And maybe you're there today. Maybe when I read the text this morning, you recoiled a little bit. Maybe when this, this text has been used by the church to abuse you, or your position in life, or places you have been, I encourage you to hold on because I think we're going to bring out some things that might illuminate our lives a little bit this morning. So don't shut me out just yet. Um, we're going to wrestle with this text together, and we're going to dive right in, okay? So at the beginning of the text, we can see that the Pharisees are asking a question of Jesus. But if you look at it sincerely, we know that they weren't actually asking anything of Jesus. They were trying to trick Jesus, which was the goal of the Pharisees more often than not. You know, in Matthew 22, they asked him what law was best. In John chapter 8, they tried to trick Jesus into stoning a woman on the Sabbath. That didn't work, in case you were wondering. It was not successful. Later on, they tried to ask him if they had to pay taxes. They asked him uh, any number of things to catch him in a trap. What they wanted to do was to catch him disagreeing with Moses. And what they wanted to do was catch him disobeying the law. They wanted to trick him, but Jesus wasn't having it, right? He never was. He wasn't having it then, and quite frankly, he's not having it now. He was insisting that we cannot use the words of this book to justify our own issues, our own problems, and our own prejudices. He wasn't going to allow that to occur. So this is exactly what the Pharisees were doing here. So they said, our father Moses... He said that we could write a certificate of divorce for our wife. Now, many of you may remember that a few months ago I preached a sermon about um, the Samaritan woman, and I talked about the divorce. The divorce in that time, a man could divorce a woman for any reason at all, or for no reason at all. A woman, I mean, a man was fully subjected to make a divorce at any time, any reason, for anything he wanted. And often... That left the woman destitute. A woman in and of herself had no channel for divorce. She had no ability to write a writ of divorce. And when she was divorced, she ended up in poverty. So what they were asking for was not the clarification of the law. But they were. it was just like when they were attempting to stone that woman on the Sabbath. 
they were attempting to harm other people by this question. They were asking Jesus if it was okay to continue to harm women. That's what they were doing. So what does Jesus do? He basically doesn't answer the question like Jesus often does. He doesn't answer the question, but he just quotes this large swath of Genesis. Now, most people would say, well, he does answer it. He answers it with Genesis, right? He answers it with that large quote. But he doesn't add any additional information at that time. He doesn't give us anything new. And both the Pharisees and Jesus knew that was in the Hebrew text. But they also knew that the part that the Pharisees were talking about, that's in the Hebrew text as well. So Jesus didn't add anything to that. And if Moses didn't think that one of these things, the the beginning of Genesis and the writ of divorce negated each other, is Jesus saying that they do? That's the question that the Pharisees are beginning to come from that. But he didn't answer any of that. He didn't answer anything at all. And that fact is driven home by the fact that the disciples are the ones who come back later. And the disciples are the ones that say, hey, excuse me, excuse me, sir, Jesus, um, you t- we talk about divorce and we would like the answer to that question now. Excuse me. So we, we know there that there was no answer in leave and cleave. That wasn't the answer that Jesus was giving in that moment. We need more. And this is where we get to the contentious part of the text, where Jesus plainly says, if a man divorces his wife and remarries, he commits adultery. And likewise, if a woman divorces her husband and remarries, she commits adultery against him. And in those two sentences, not the portions before or the portions after, they have been codified in Christian context and made into our own version of Mosaic law for the last 2,000 years. Because these are the rules of divorce, right? In some churches, breaking these laws will keep you from taking communion or serving as a deacon or singing behind a pulpit. I know several good and godly and gracious men and women who were never allowed to serve out as pastors and priests that they were called to be because of a literal interpretation of this text. I once knew of a church, they were shrinking in size a little bit, but they still wanted to maintain a deacon board. Um, we don't have one of those, but some people do, and you might remember it from places you've been before. Uh, they wanted to maintain a deacon board, but being a Southern Baptist church, only men could serve in that capacity. And in the same vein, they had to be husband of one wife. Now, there were no bigamists among them. Uh, zero. They had no bigamists, but they didn't have anybody to serve on a deacon board. And why is that? Because a a literal and legalistic interpretation of this text tells the reader that divorce and remarriage means you now have two spouses and it's sinful. But why do we make some of the words of Jesus law and not others? Yes, Jesus does say that if a man divorces his wife and remarries, he commits adultery. But in the same gospel, he says that if you look upon a woman with lust, well, you've committed adultery. And if you move on a little farther, Jesus also says, if your eye offends you, you pluck it out. I have never seen a one-eyed deacon board. (laughs) Ever. That's not something I have ever encountered. Why do we make some of these things law and not others? The question cannot become, though, what words of Jesus do I have to obey and what words of Jesus can I ignore? That's when we get into a difficult part. 
It must be. The question that must be asked in this moment is what is Jesus trying to tell us? What is Jesus trying to tell us here? Because a plain reading of the text will often leave us all blind. It isn't, that the, it isn't the law that the Son of Man is imposing upon us. We have to go back, right? We have to go back to what we know about the life and the character and the heart of the Jesus that we serve when we read this or any text. We know that Jesus didn't come to this earth to impose arbitrary rules and laws. But we know that Jesus came here to liberate us. He came here to free us. So who is he liberating in this passage? Well, we look no further than the very next sentence to get our answer, our first answer. People began to bring the children. When we speak about children, it's not the same way that they were speaking about children in that, te- in that time. In the Roman Empire, um, at that period of time, over one-third of the population was enslaved. And many of them were children. Children were seen as the property of the father to the extent that when a young girl was married off, her father was still considered the head of her household until his death. So children in this society inherently lacked value. Now that's difficult for us in our context to wrap our minds around, especially in a church society where our evangelistic base for the last 30 years has been VBS. Right? It's difficult for us to connect with people who don't value children. But our ability to value children is based on our Christianity. It is a product of it, and it's not apart from it. Because that is not the inherent role of children of all societies. And what Jesus is doing here is what Jesus does best. And he is saying, hey, those marginalized those people that are on the edges of society, those people that nobody cares about, those people that lack value, well, you have to be like them. You have to be like them to enter the kingdom of heaven. You have to become like a little child. And in that moment, he's not just pulling up the marginalized. He's communicating to the powerful at the same time that you have to become lowly. He's leveling the playing field. He's communicating the idea that we are all, that all of us are the same in the eyes of God. So that's the same thing he's doing when he's speaking about divorce in that subversive way that only Jesus can do. They ask if a man could put his wife away via decree. And he gave an answer about a woman requesting a divorce. In a time, in a period where women weren't allowed to do that, in a period of time where women weren't allowed to have a voice at all, he gave the answer from the perspective of a woman. Why does it matter that this happened? It matters because Jesus gave a voice to a woman. He gave her value. He's saying, you asked about what it was permissible for people in power to do, and what I am coming to do is to make everybody equal and everybody on the same plane. Jesus was tearing down the patriarchal society that was around him. In a context where children were property to be owned, he made them the people to model our lives after. In a society where women were seen and not heard, he gave them a voice. So what does it mean to enter the the kingdom like a little child? 
I'm glad everybody asked me about children because I like to talk about mine. So you're never going to get a sermon from me that doesn't involve my kids. What does it mean to be a little child? I feel like I'm an expert on small children at this point. My six-year-old is slightly independent, but my two-year-old can do nothing without help. She can do nothing without supervision. She can't get a snack on her own. She can't get a drink on her own. She can't get bathed or dressed. I know she can't get a drink on her own because she spilled a whole gallon of tea this week. She got it out. She dumped it on the floor. Um, She can do nothing. She can't put her shoes on by herself. She's completely dependent on the help of others to function in this world. Completely. This week, I found Winnie outside on top of her small playhouse, like a play school playhouse, a little plastic thing. Um, and she pushed the stepladder up to it, climbed on top, and hung on the side of it. Um, and I could hear her. I opened the windows and, like, the blinds, and our whole, the back of our house is just windows. And I opened the blinds, and I let her go out and play. It's a fenced-in yard. But I can hear, help, help, mama, help, mama. And so I run out there. She's not but this high off the ground. She doesn't know that. Um, so, and she's just screaming for help, right? She needs some assistance, to get herself out of where she got herself in. And although there may be numerous layers to what Jesus is trying to tell us in this passage, I have to believe that one of the things he's communicating to us is our need to be dependent. Not just on God. Yes, we need that. But we need each other. We need other people. In the kingdom of God, sometimes it takes us having to say, I can't do this. I can't do this without help. I'm struggling with doubt or loneliness or obedience or holiness or whatever it is, but I'm unable to figure this out on my own. Like a two-year-old hanging off of a playhouse, I can't do this by myself. I need some help. And what, like a little child, we need the family. We need the family of God. We need other believers. We need people in our lives to come beside us and to help us. And although these few short passages of Scripture have been used to push people away from the table in the kingdom of God for centuries. When we dig a little deeper, we can see that it was only for our liberation that Jesus ever spoke. He was breaking women and children free of their oppressive place in society. And once we were all on the same page, he was imploring us to seek dependence on God and dependence on each other. And that's what it means to pursue the kingdom of God. He's reminding us that to enter the kingdom, we have to be willing to lose our positions of power. We have to give a voice to the marginalized. We have to be willing to tear down systems that keep our fellow brothers and sisters from accessing the kingdom. One does not enter the kingdom by codifying particular portions of the words of Jesus and then acting like a gatekeeper about who can enter it. The table was and will forever be open to anyone who can profess their need for help. To profess their need for Jesus. And I hope that's where we all come today, where we all come into the family of God, where we all come into the room today, is that we can all stand in one voice and say, we need Jesus, and we need each other. Let us pray.